This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. David Scott is on his annual assignment at the Grand Prix in Singapore. So from the Business Insider team, I'm joined this week by uh, Greg McKenna, who's a contributing markets and economics editor. Greg, great to have you here. Hello, everyone, and it's great to be here. Um, and our guest for this week, um, we're very privileged uh, to have Kerry, Greg, uh, Kerry Craig, uh, who is global market strategist for worldwide investment bank, JP Morgan. Uh, Kerry, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, do you want to start just maybe by explaining um, what these days, what does a global strategist's job involve at JP Morgan? It's a, uh, it's a great title, but it's much more simple than it would suggest. Uh, all we do in our team, it's Market Insights, is try to provide some clarity about what's currently happening in capital markets and economies around the world at a macro level uh, to help investors understand what's going on and how they should position their portfolios. Um, we're not big on forecasting. We're not going to tell you what GDP is going to be next year or where the currency is going to go by the end of the year. What we want to say is if you understand how markets behave now, that will lead to better rational decisions and hopefully to lead to those investment goals you're trying to achieve. It's about cutting through the noise. It's about the detail that you mentioned. Which is uh, why I'm um, thrilled and delighted that you're um, here uh, to talk with us about what has been a very, very interesting week um, uh, around the world. Um, I'm going to start with a bit of a parable. Um, so sometimes you see these things crossing the wires, um, the news wires, which are, you know, there's been a sizable earthquake um, in the Pacific, and um, there are huge amounts of coastlines around the Pacific Rim put on uh, tsunami watch. Uh, and then everybody sits back and waits and just watches and wait to see what happens. Um, and usually these things end up being, you know, a very small wave is detected um, on a, on, on, you know, on an uninhabited island, um, and everybody sort of gets back to their business. Um, but at the same time, when you're watching these kind of things um, day in day out, you might look at it and go, you know what, that was weird. Um, and for me, that was, I think, that is the kind of thing. That was the thing that immediately sort of sprung to mind when I thought about what happened on Friday uh, in the U.S. Um, there was there, there was a shift, uh, and very unusually, um, we had a situation where both stocks and bonds um, were getting sold down. Normally, you'd get money coming out of stocks and going into bonds, and you get a bonds rally, um, but this did not happen this time. So, Kerry, do you want to talk about what you saw um, through that very strange sell-off uh, Friday and uh, Monday and Tuesday? Sure, it was. Uh, <clears throat> it's a really good analogy you used because people panicked uh, when they thought something bad was going to happen uh, and didn't really understand the ramifications of what they do. You assume that um, markets are rational, that investors are rational, but they're not. They're irrational. So they factored or expected something to happen, and it didn't, and so they reacted badly to it. And what they wanted to happen was they wanted all the liquidity that's been pumped into the markets by central banks around the world, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, even the Fed over the last few years, to continue. Uh, and what they got on Thursday, or what they interpreted as being, was a very hawkish statement by Mr Mario Draghi, 
who was the head or sorry is the head of the European Central Bank when they didn't increase their asset purchase program um, and explicitly sort of downplayed that kind of thing. However, when you actually listen to what he said, he was saying it's coming, but we're not going to do it right now because our current program still has six months to run. Let's not get too excited about it. But markets didn't see that. They didn't get what they wanted because that expectation of what consists or what is considered to be appropriate monetary policy now is so very, very loose that if you don't get that, then markets think you're getting the opposite. You're getting tapering, and that's why the bond stuff was like a tapering tantrum. And because global bond markets now are so interconnected that the long end of any global bond market is affected by not just what the short end does in terms of the Fed rates, but what the everyone else does in terms of bond buying, whether it's Japan or the ECB, that just flowed around the world and knocked on to US Treasuries and then knocked on to the equity markets because what's driven the equity markets over you know, most of this year has actually not been earnings, but it's been multiple expansion. It's been that relative valuation argument that says bonds are ludicrously expensive, and government bonds at least, uh, and therefore equities don't look so bad even though they're trading at very high price-to-earnings multiples. And when that starts to reverse, that's why you got bonds selling off because you didn't get the loosening that people expected, and that relative valuation argument started to look a bit weak. I would just point out one final thing on that, is that bond yields have been creeping up since June around the world. It's not a new thing, and stocks and equities have been absorbing that. But when you get a sharp move, like in two days of 20 basis points on very, very low bonds, that hurts capital, and that hurts that relative valuation argument, and that's why people question it. Because, Greg, the amount of money involved here um, uh, with the move out of bonds is vast, isn't it? Yeah, it's really interesting at the moment. So, uh, you know, the Bank of America Merrill Lynch survey shows that um, investors have got more cash on the sidelines than they have in 15 years. Um, but at the same time, you've got leveraged accounts that are super long or and volatility accounts that were super long stocks. And then you've got all these people who are buying bonds for capital gains because they thought someone else was going to, um, to, to buy them off them. So the, the move that we've seen, it, it does feel like a, a bit like your you know, little tsunami, but it does feel like a paradigm shift. You know, as Kerry said, there's this recognition that bonds have been selling off that uh, maybe Mario Draghi isn't going to give everything he said. Maybe the Bank of Japan isn't going to uh, follow through. Maybe the Fed is going to tighten sooner or later. Maybe this QE negative interest rate experiment is coming to the end of its useful life. Uh, and we heard from one of the ECB guys uh, last night who made the same point Draghi made, which is there's still plenty of accommodation. Um, but we don't need to be in the thrall of markets. And I think this is the, the dawn of, of that. And it'll be a, it's not a short cycle thing. It's not one or two days or three days or a week or even two weeks. But um, th that seems to be what drove that. And if, does, if cash does get reallocated, uh, then, yeah, it has a, a, you know, an earth-shattering um, potential uh, you know, to drive markets. So one of the things that you both touched on uh, there was um, this money flow issue, which we've um, I've touched on a bit in this podcast um, over the last couple of months. Um, you know, we had Shane Oliver on here a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying um, just basically stocks in the U.S. looked overbought, um, and you know, probably um, time for a, maybe a bit of a healthy pullback. Um, so, with the move that we saw uh, in U.S. stocks um, Friday, and a little bit of a snapback on Monday. Um, followed by another sell-down on, on, in Tuesday's trading session. How much of these kind of moves now, Kerry, do you think are attributable to technical 
uh, changes and just pure mathematical asset allocation by um, either particular funds um, or just um, parts of funds that um, are driven by basically computers. Yeah, that's a question that's actually come up quite a few times over the last few years, and it stems from the flash crash they had was it back in 2014, where you basically have you know logarithms that are meant to be doing the trading for you, and they work super fast and give you the advantage, but they can also work against you if they do something they shouldn't. Um, however, I think that what you saw in the last few days is maybe the markets are thinking about an inflection point. It's not just about technicals and stop losses coming off and all that kind of stuff. It's actually the end of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's people coming back from their holidays back to trading, starting to pay attention to the markets, the event risk in terms of all the central bank action that happens in September, the expectations for it to be so high, and people looking at their portfolios and looking at very, very low yields and saying, well, I'm taking a big bet here. If they don't go the other way, I'm going to lose a lot of money. Maybe I should think about not going all the way through that. Maybe I should unwind some of that positioning until after these events have passed and then I'll reallocate. So some of it's just front-running a lot of the uncertainty around the Federal Reserve, around the Bank of Japan, and also the fact that the oil price has been swinging around a bit for the last few days, which isn't helping the energy stocks. One of the things you did see was financials obviously benefit from you know yields rising because you're looking at trying to, trying to see a steeper yield curve, which is helping them. So it's not been all bad, but I think the questions about the income story, the over price nature of certain sectors of the market, utilities, and what people are paying for that income in the face of a very gradual or even glacial rate hike schedule from the Fed is one that people start to question about how much they've paid for those assets and whether they want to unwind that position. And Greg, um, all the way through August, um, like much of the rest of the year, um, we saw stocks just tick, 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 grinding higher. Um, a little bit of that, you know, um, there's, there's some risk-hungry um, money somewhere. Um, it's got to find a home. Um, and it tips into um, the equities indices, and um, you just get this, you know, valuations just get just keep on getting stretched. Um, one of the terms that um, people use throughout August, and I, I, I'm glad that you're uh, smiling here, but uh, one of the terms that... Um, people were throwing around was complacency and I remember I do remember having a few conversations with you uh, about this and um, maybe part of it is you know in the US big fund managers are all up at the Hamptons um, you know it's the middle of the summer um, but uh, this whole idea that anybody was complacent or relaxed about what was happening in stocks um, is you know if you talk to somebody who's in the business not the case. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, just because the market doesn't do anything in an index term doesn't mean that nothing was going on. Uh, and we can see that with the, you know, the volatility funds being super long and that kind of thing. We could see that here in Australia before the collapse in the last little while from 55, 70 odd or whatever it was. We had massive movements, intra-index, um, you know, different stocks moving that kind of stuff. And while US stocks traded pretty quietly for eight weeks, we had the Aussie moving through a four or five percent range. We had oil under 40 bucks back up near 50 bucks. Uh, we had bonds selling off. The market wasn't complacent. It was just looking elsewhere. So if you think of it as, as a, you know, a balloon you've got in your hand and you, you try and squeeze it, well, the volatility pops out somewhere else. And it popped out in oil, in the Aussie dollar, uh, and to a certain extent, you know, the guys who were long, you know, JGBs down near point, you know, negative point three, you know, who were long, you know, German ten years under, uh, you know, under zero, you know, they were losing a lot of money. There's no way they were complacent. 
um, which is why I got a bit excited about the use of the term earlier in the week. But, uh, you know, compla- complacency is not normally something that people who could lose money and potentially their job feel uh, when markets are moving against them. I was actually, I thought you were going to use a different term there, um, the one that does get banned around Tina. Now, I'm not talking about Tina Fey, Tina Turner, but, you know, there is no alternative. And I think that's why when you look at the U.S. market in particular, it's viewed as a defensive market. It's large cap stocks, it's blue chip stocks, um, you know, mainly not focused on what's happening in the rest of the world, usually the U.S. economy, which is looking better than most places. And so people are buying into that, slowly drip feeding into it because it is viewed as a relatively safe harbour in, in what is actually quite a volatile world. And that's why that is not people buying risk as such, but they're buying risk because they have to because there's nothing else out there, but also buying sort of downside protection because it's the U.S. market. To That's right, extent. buy Apple, right? Yeah. So... Um, or not, if you don't like wireless headphones. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, we we await to see the cash flow um, from from that over um, over the next six months. Um, so one of the things I think was interesting was the reaction in the Australian market, right? So typically throughout this year, generally see the Australian market, you know, apart from you know some regulatory risk around the banks. Um, this is my sort of take on it, but you generally see it, you know, follow what's been happening in terms of risk appetite, um, what's been happening uh, in the U.S. Um, uh, the ASX hasn't had a great year. Uh, it went negative for the year um, during the week. Um, but, um, Greg, you had some observations on it that it just, for some reason, it didn't manage to follow when we had a, a good snapback on Monday um, the ASX didn't follow. Yeah, the pro- if, if I take it from a trading perspective and, and look at the price action, the price action's been terrible. Um, you know, we tried to, cl- uh, to close above 5,600 in August and, and couldn't get there. And then, you know, the, the points got washed off and they tried to get back above 5,500. It, it's almost as like there's some sort of structural underlying issue here where Australian investors or Australian fund, fund managers think that the market's overvalued. We wrote a piece about it um, based on some Deutsche Bank research about a month ago, I think. Um, And now that all the good news or all the news is out from earnings season, uh, it seemed like the catalyst to buy um, disappeared. And and just one more thing. The Australian market, if if I was to characterise 2016, it's it's a year of consistent underperformance by the ASX and then catch-up. So we've done this a couple of times this year where we've fallen materially much weaker than US markets and then we've caught up. So I'd, I'd love to hear what you've got to say, Kerry, about what structurally is going on in our local market. Well, you saw that at the end of uh, 2015. We saw that big Santa rally kicking at the end of the year, which actually brought the market up and it had been down, I think, through October. Um, for the Australian market, I think if it comes out at flat this year, you're doing okay on a price level because you've been taking the dividends, which is you know, fairly decent. That's what most people are investing for. Um, the difference, I think, in the last few days has obviously been the impact on the commodities uh, and, and the resource sector. We've seen the market, which differs from what happens in the U.S. given the sector weights. I think that's what's been the differentiating factor there. Uh, I think the big question for investors in the Australian market right now is if they're owning those income proxies, those bond proxies, about whether the dividends they think are actually going to materialise or not and how much they're paying for that future dividend and those future earning streams. You continue to see downgrades in terms of EPS growth through 2017. Uh, it's pretty high compared to this year, um, but you're seeing that start to come down. And a lot of that is in the resource sector because they, you know, analysts are looking for a snapback in terms of what these companies can deliver and it has been a, a very strong performer this year. So I think there's uh, certain structural stories in terms of the index competition composition which will make it drive higher but 
it's about how much people are paying for those dividends. And it, you know, their market's trading at close to 16 times forward PE now. That's about just over one standard deviation from where it is on average. That's a level that it very rarely breaks through for a very long period of time. It's generally a level you see it if you look at a chart and we, we have one. It doesn't stay up there very long before it starts to, starts to derate on that one. It's interesting, um, and you again. You touched um, a little bit on you know the, um, the 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 appetite for you know obviously there's the dividends, and when you're in fixed income, there's you know you get your coupon. Um, one of the things um, has been, and Greg, you, um, I, I think this was one of the very early conversations that we had when we first met, was that if you want to see when something's going down, just watch bonds. Um, the real trouble starts in the bond market. Um, and I think last week on the podcast, we had Joanne Masters here from ANZ, and we, we were talking about there was this, um, it was Jefferies, um, the, the investment bank in the U.S., um, described it as a mini-riot in, uh, in Japanese government bonds. And we saw the 10 years uh, this week touch zero. Um, so it's been a big sell-off. Um, do you want to talk, Greg, about why the trouble starts with bonds and why, when yields start rising across the board, why is that um, something to watch? My career has been sort of bookended, if we're at inflection point for bonds, bookended by the big rally in bonds. You know, from, from when I started in markets back in 1988, um, you know, Volcker was wandering through and, you know, trying to beat inflation. And we've seen, you know, bonds rally for a, a large period. But... The things that have also happened during my career is that every time bond investors stop worrying about the return of their money and start worrying about the return on their money and start um, taking on characteristics of of equity investors, um, you you tend to end up with markets overpriced. And when that snaps back, everything goes to heck. So think of, you know, Drexel Burnham Lambert, think of the 1994, you know, savings and loan crisis, think of LTCM, think of the Asian crisis, and, and of course, the big daddy of them all, which was the GFC. You know, that was a a bunch of people because um, rates had compressed so much, just chasing further and further and further incremental returns and thinking not like bond managers. Um, and so that's that's why I say that, you know, that's where trouble always, well, it doesn't always because, you know, of course, we saw the Nasdaq bubble in 2000, but generally trouble in markets starts in, in bonds. Uh, and I think the reason that when they move, they destabilise everything else is what Kerry alluded to earlier is the valuation effect of rising bonds and, and what that does to equity cash flows and all that kind of stuff. Potentially now, because rates are so low, we could be at an acutely difficult period of transition if bonds are rising. So certainly something that I'm keeping an eye on very closely. So, um, Kerry, is that, do you take that perspective too? That you, like, do, would you, if you see a sell-off in bonds like we have seen, is that, for you, is that some, the telltale of um, something stirring? Well, I think there's, there's two things. The first, that uh, a riot in bonds equals zero yield, which I think a statement in itself <laughs> is something everyone should complain, contemplate when we think about yields going to zero as being a, a bad thing. Um, and, and the second is that these little taper tantrums or you know bond market tantrums have occurred in the past. You know, 2013 with Bernanke, the, the German bond that went like up 60 basis points in five days and wiped out income for like 60 years just in that move. That they're going to persist because you have distortions in the market from what central banks are doing. That all this bomb buying, all this money that's been pumped out, will end badly at some point. 
and we know it. Everyone knows it. It's going to end up and to be some bad. You can't exactly say when, but it will end badly because it's skewing how capital is allocated and what people are doing, and bonds shouldn't have a negative yield. Um, it's just not priced into anyone who studies. I hate to think of anyone who's studying finance at the moment that has to try and learn about this stuff. Um, so I we've think we've done some pieces on Business Insider. Jim Edwards, who's the UK editor, talks about um, this professor that he had when he studied economics at university. And his professor was doing a thought experiment with negative yields. And he was talking about how ridiculous it was that you would ever have negative yield on a government bond. Um, but let's pretend that, that it might happen. What would that look like? And they go through this sort of cartoon scenario. Yet here we are. Yeah, exactly the point. So we're in a world that you know we shouldn't be, and no one understands. But these little tantrums are going to continue to happen, and they're, they're amplified because you know you can get into the technicals of of duration, you know, the curve, and say that when you get uh, small movements, when prices or when yields are very low, it has a massive effect on capital, and this is the tantrum effect that's going to go through. And again, I go back to that point about the expectations that central banks know they're reaching their limits, um, markets know that they've reached their limits. They've been very inventive in what they're doing. They can adjust some of their programs, they can do other things, but it's ending this monetary policy regime that we're in is actually coming towards an end. And Kerry, if you extrapolate that a little bit further and you listen to some of the uh, what we're hearing out of Japan with, with Abe and new stimulus packages and that kind of thing, do you think that other governments are going to follow Japan, you know, Germany or Italy or, or, or the UK or, you know, US when we get a new government? Are we going to see fiscal policy? Is that, is, can that potentially, you know, come down or are we still stuck in the paradigm that you can't borrow? Uh, it's I think what happens is the world looks towards Japan because they're, they're at the front edge of, like, running out of room. It's like, if you've ever watched, if you watch the Olympics, you saw Hussein Bolt, right? He does the 100 metres. You'd swear that he actually stops running about three metres from the end and just coasts through. Japan is still going full whack. They run at 110 metres, and that's the problem. Everyone's watching them and saying, well, whatever they're going to do, everyone else is going to expect the rest of the world to follow because central bank policy actions become more coordinated, and that's why if the Fed goes on a different path, it becomes such a, a potential disruptor of markets. Um, well, not in the long term because they're not really going to go very high, but in the near term. And I think if you the things that's, the problems with the world and why we're not seeing growth and not seeing inflation, you have had monetary policy try to stimulate that, but it can't fix productivity. It can't fix ageing demographics. It can't fix uh, immigration. It can't do those things. Fiscal policy can add a bit more growth. It can maybe get a little bit more inflation. But again, it's a sticking plaster over what needs to be addressed at an economic and structural level for these economies. I get told off all the time in high school for, like, rocking on my chair. If you're rocking your chair, you're going to break one of the legs. Markets have been relying on monetary policy and rocking on their chair for a long, long time, and that chair leg is looking very weak now. And so you have to look at fiscal policy, structural policy. That's what you're seeing actually going to try and support markets, and that's where those changes need to come from. So um, let's talk about um, two of the big structural things that may happen. We've been waiting for years now for the Fed to really start to move. So we've had one hike when we thought a couple of years ago maybe that we'd have maybe four by this point. We've had one. Um, there was talk about another one in September. Um, last time we looked, the uh, market was pricing about a 15% chance of a, of a move next week when they announced their decision on the 21st. Um, and December, which everybody thought was a lock um, a, a couple of months ago, um, is now at less than 50%. Um, Kerry, what's your thoughts, and I actually am going to start with Greg because Greg thinks they're going to move. I think it's time for central banks to uh, take back the uh, 
the ascendancy from markets. Last night, that um, ECB guy that I, I talked about, you know, saying that uh, central banks shouldn't be in the thrall uh, of markets. Um, Nikaso, from, who's the deputy governor of the Bank of Japan, said something similar last week. That was a piece of advice that Glenn Stevens gave in his exit interview uh, just recently. That sometimes you, you know, if you're going to be misunderstood, that's just too bad. You've got to do the right thing. Um, I can understand why the Fed could do nothing. But they've promised 20 rate hikes and delivered one in the past couple of years. Um, they've got zero credibility, I think, with themselves, let alone the market. Um, and the business cycle's not dead. So they need to get rates back up towards and above 1% so that next time they need to lower them, they can lower them. Uh, because clearly this idea of negative interest rates doesn't seem to have the traction that some of the banks that experimented with it thought it would. Yeah, no, I think they've always, the Fed's almost discounted doing negative rates. Uh, Jackson Hole, they kind of talked about it, and QE is more likely a path they'd go down to. And as, as long as they have their balance sheet as big as it is, any of these central banks, they're effectively doing QE. Um, I don't think September's on the cards. I do think it's December. I think they're going to raise rates. I totally agree. 100% they should. I think the signal they send by not raising rates is very negative about the economy. In fact, they're punishing anyone who's trying to earn money on interest. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, in the US, there's more interest-bearing assets than interest-bearing liabilities. People would make more money and be in a better state in terms of their fiscal household balance sheet if you actually saw higher interest rates come through at banks. That, that would be a benefit for the consumer. It would be a benefit for spending and would actually stimulate growth. Um, and it would remove uncertainty. You know, that valid point, a very valid point about credibility is something that's being damaged. Central banks are meant to be independent, they're meant to be credible. That's something they're not so much anymore. Um, but I think if you look at the data, yes, the economy is in a relatively robust shape. Uh, my boss in the US refers to it as a healthy tortoise. It's going slowly but creeping along. Uh, I think speed's relative. I think I look at Australia and say it's a healthy tortoise, and the US more looks like you know a bit of a sloth. It's growing at a very slow pace, but you know compared to here, it's, a, it's glacial. But you know, and, the, and slightly adorable. <laughs> yeah, slightly adorable. It's got cute eyes. Um, but the the thing is, the uh, the jobs numbers were were a bit weaker. The ISM numbers for manufacturing, non-manufacturing were both weaker. Um, the housing market's coming back up. I think there's enough there to say the momentum is right in the economy. I don't think the Fed is going to rush. <laughs> so I don't think three months is really going to hurt them too much and the economic data would get better. It would have to be very, very good over the next couple of weeks for them to do anything. Um, and there's also the US election. So why get in front of that? Um, and just moving on to that, um, your colleagues at uh, JP Morgan, Andrew Goldberg and Hannah Anderson, um, have a, a very, very interesting note out on... Um, you know, the, um, just looking at what the potential impact would be of, um, from the two possible outcomes in the, um, in the U.S. election. And um, I think they put it very bluntly at the start of the note that uh, we are in the midst of a very unusual U.S. election campaign. Um, they talk uh, very interestingly, I think, um, about uh, intense political polarization, and they talk about basically how parties are hurting their own votes um, to um, levels that are at almost um, historical highs. The last time we saw it this high was back at the turn of the 20th century, um, which is extraordinary because normally in the U.S., you know, it doesn't, you know, party discipline isn't as people cross the floor um, a lot more traditionally. Well, they, had, they did over the, the course of the 20th century. Um, that period now appears to have rapidly come to an end and you have a lot more herding of, 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 of voting along party lines. Um, but um, the, um, I think they talk about the two scenarios. One is Hillary Clinton, and I think this is very interesting. So you talk about, well, most of the conversation is around 
will Clinton get over the line um, or will Donald Trump surprise and um, possibly snatch a victory? Um, but when you look at it, the other important thing that's, that's um, critical in terms of the president's ability to do anything is what the composition of the Congress would be. Um, and they point out that basically Hillary would be in with a Republican Congress or Trump would be in with a Paul Ryan-controlled Congress and neither of them is going to get is going to have a lot of uh, of power. Um, Kerry, do you want to walk us through that and um, uh, what the implications are for economic policy? Yeah, the, um, I'm going to start off with the, the broad case and sort of our, our summary of what's going to happen is that the U.S. electoral system or, or political system has a big positive and a big minus. It's it's fair, it's democratic, you know, it's the the free world. It has checks and balances in place to make sure that one person can't do anything too radical. And on the negative side, those checks and balances prevent a lot of policy actually happening. Uh, and so that's the outcome, that under either um, possible candidate, like Clinton or Trump, they're both going to end up with a very fractured system that would less likely allow them to do anything they really talk about in the electoral campaign because everything becomes very watered down. The power is in the Congress. Right now, uh, you'd need a 15% swing vote for Hillary Clinton to get the House, but only a 5% to get the Senate. So there's a good chance that on the ballot, if she does well, you get the coattail effect and the Democrats take the, the Senate, but not the House, so therefore you have a split legislative system as well. It doesn't work. And then the other case of that is you have Trump in power, but Paul Ryan took a long time to endorse Trump, uh, a little political infighting in the party. Maybe a lot of those policies don't get stuck through, but you know the president has a lot of power. He can make decisions unilaterally. He can execute uh, executive orders. So some of the uncertainty really does reside about a, a Trump win. Less so under Clinton, it's more status quo because of the split between the House and the Senate. Trump does have a lot of uncertainty around his foreign policy, what his actual economic plan is, what his view on immigration is, the fact that he changes his mind so often. Under either one, they've both talked about the need for infrastructure spending, a little bit of fiscal uh, stimulus, so you will get a, a bump to the markets from that. So you are going to get that to try and support growth. But, you know, that's probably not what's needed. It's going to be a very short-term kind of effect. It's not really address the longer-term um, areas of the economy that need to be improved, such as that demographics and, and the productivity. And for investors, what they really should think about it is the business cycle, which you talked about before. It's not dead. That's really what they should be thinking about. Under a Republican or a Democratic, you know, their, their effect on the economy and markets has been mixed over the last, like, almost century. But what hasn't changed is how the business cycle works, how companies operate. The big questions are about, obviously, corporate tax, uh, household tax, what we're going to see for, for high owners. A lot of this roots back to the problem, whether it's in the US or in the Eurozone, is about the rise of populism, is inequality and how people are being viewed. And it's no less different in the US. There's a huge amount of inequality. That's why you've had a rise in people like Trump, like Bernie Sanders, and how that will get addressed. So I think... The market reaction will be more severe because of the uncertainty under Trump, but I think there's still some positive under either candidate in terms of how they address tax policy, the fiscal uh, stimulus that might come through, but they'd be quite short-term, and it is about the business cycle you need to think about, those company earnings and how they're being delivered. And the U.S. economy is always going to head towards a recession sooner rather than later. The next president can't change that. It's going to head 
towards a recession in our mind within the next three years. This has been an extremely long expansion, the second longest since World War II, I believe. Um, and so it naturally has to come in the end. The phrase, trees don't grow in the sky, is one that gets bandied around, um, which I think is an unusual one. But, you know, these things are, are grounded in how far they can actually go. They have boundaries, and the recession, sorry, the, the expansion in the U.S. is coming to an end, and it will enter a recession, and, and you can't change that. And so that's what matters for markets and for investors. There is a spectacular uh, chart in that note on the... Um the trajectory of uh, the debt, um, the likely debt, and you see the Clinton range um, with you know um, federal debt. Over, this is overall growth government debt um, rising from about 75% of GDP 2016 out to um, something like 85% by the end of 2026, um, and then the Trump range is somewhere between 100% of GDP and 140%. And does um, that include the cost of a wall? <laughs> That's right. Well, um, well, he, he's he's promised that he, didn't he promise that he could renegotiate the, um, the the cost of the debt? You know that he you know I'm very good uh, at, re- at negotiating debt. Uh, very very good. Ask anybody. Um, I, I've rene- renegotiated debt. Yeah, lots of it in terms of you know. <laughs> told the creditors, um, sorry, you're not getting that back. Um, Greg. Interesting uh, from Kerry there talking about the, you know the uh, U.S. recession likely. Um, what's your take on that, um, and how does it fit into the overall global economic picture? Because we've had some pretty okay data out of China this week. Um, yeah, the, the business cycle is not dead. Um, you know, this is a very very long expansion, as, as Kerry said. Uh, the only mitigating circumstance I can potentially see for the U.S. is the. The increasing importance of services means to me that we probably get lower growth, potentially, but we also get lower volatility of growth, so that it's not an awful recession, but it's a recession. And so, yeah, it'll it'll come sometime in the next sort of three or four years uh, in the term of the next president, as Kerry said. Um, uh, You know, the the question then is, can China do the heavy lifting as it did, you know, half a decade ago if the US is slowing down and that kind of thing? And uh, that's an interesting question. You know, the data at the moment's okay. You know, retail sales above 10%, uh, you know, industrial production where it is, all those kind of things. It's still a massive economy. It's still growing well. It's still in transition. Um, But the question is... It's credit fueled again, as we saw yesterday with that credit data and into housing and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, can China prop up the rest of the world? Probably not if the US goes into a uh, recession. The IMF says this is going to be the slowest growth since 2009, so this year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time for the Fed to be contemplating raising rates, I guess, when, you know, the outlook is, is the way the outlook is around the planet. Um, and carry quickly, China. Um, what's your take on where where things? Everybody yeah, the data is the uh, the stimulus measures they entered uh, entered into earlier in the year are still kicking in. They're still dragging through, uh, and it hasn't crashed. Our, our view was it was never going to collapse, but you are going to get a slow drag on growth. There have forsaken you know reorganization of their economy at the expense of growth and that's why that debt's still being used to prop it up um then the near term that's quite a positive thing they've, they've recognized they can't go through this extreme move from consumption away from investment without hurting their economy and they've decided that growth is, is a better thing in the near term i think china will again continue to slow down um what we have seen is that growth differential between developed and the emerging markets start to widen out again. It became very narrow. Some of that's because DM are slowing down, developed markets are slowing down, and some of it's because emerging markets are starting to pick back up again. Um, from a market perspective, that just means that 
the one thing that's been hated for so long, except for the last few months, has been emerging markets. And people will look at those assets and their valuations a little bit more closely, I think, when they look at where the growth will come through in the future uh, and what the returns they can get out of being. So there's still opportunities out there. It's just that people will be refocusing on how they do it. The U.S. economy matters massively because it's 50% of the global growth. How much it slows down, how long that next recession is, is a big question. Two quarters of negative growth recession, that's all it might be. And it might start popping back up. It doesn't mean you're in for another global financial crisis by any means. Um, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. And why we would, while we would all love to talk about nothing but uh, uh, markets and economics um, for hours and hours on end, um, we usually do do um, – we're lucky enough to, um, to, to get around um, a little bit uh, in sort of, I suppose, the work and the – um, Greg, in your time in, in finance, you were um, at Westpac and you were traveling around Asia and the, and the States. Um, and Kerry, um, your job takes you to some uh, very interesting places. So I thought it might be a nice uh, thing to just ask you what your favorite city is and why. Um, my mind's a bit esoteric. My favorite city is actually, I went to Mexico three years ago and uh, it's actually, I think it's, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Uh, it's Mount Alban. So it's just out of Oaxaca. So it's a, it's a, it's a very, very ancient city on top of a mountain. And the reason I like it is you go up there and there's still quite a lot of it in terms of complete, in terms of the ruins. Uh, and it's in the most beautiful thing. And you get up there and you realize, I don't know how they built this thing on top of a mountain, but it's just incredible. So it's not a modern city by any means, but it is the most amazing city if you use your imagination a little bit. Um, I, I was um, lucky to live. My father worked in construction in the Middle East for um, throughout when Ireland was going through a recession in the 1980s, and we moved out there for a few years. And I lived in Riyadh um, when I was a kid. Now, brilliant when you're nine years old. Um, but I've looked at it on Google Maps, and oh my God, it is just this brown mess in the middle of a desert. Don't ever go there. Um, <laughs> um, it's got a it's got a vast uh, U.S. Air Force base in 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 the middle of it. Uh, so when we'd be out at the pool in the afternoons um, with all the other people in the compound, um, you'd see the um, the E three Sentry uh, aircraft circling overhead, and occasionally like an F sixteen or an F fifteen. That was kind of cool, particularly when you were nine years old. Um, one of the things I do really like, uh, um, I love um, Dublin, um, where I'm from, uh, beautiful town. Um, small, compact, um, nice people, uh, great pubs, um, good Guinness, and uh, increasingly good food. Uh, it's a very, very cosmopolitan town now. Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, Microsoft, they're all there, um, you know, um, for various tax reasons, etc. Um, but it, what it has done is it has reignited uh, the city. Um, it, it's an um, amazing ability to um, recreate it, consistently recreate itself. Um, with all sorts of different people and industries and it uh, makes it a very interesting place to be. Um, and it's also home. So, um, Greg, what about you? Uh, yeah, as you said, I was lucky enough when I was working at uh, NAB and Westpac that uh, besides Jakarta and Moscow, I got to go to pretty much every city on the planet I wanted to go to. So um, I've got two favourites. Uh, I moved to Melbourne when I was 19, so I feel like I grew up there. So whenever I go back, it kind of feels like home. Um, but uh, my favourite city is definitely New York. You know, it's just a great town. Even when it's freezing cold, the sky's wide open and blue. And, you know, there's all those different mixes of nationalities and cultures and the different accents you hear and the places you can go for a beer or a scotch or a 
dinner or it's just, you know, the different burrows. It's just, to me, it's just where the whole planet comes together. And, and for, you know, I just love that kind of feel that you get in New York and you can walk from, you know, the meat packers to Soho. And I, whenever I go to a city, I always walk it to, 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 to get a sense of it. And for me, New York was the, the place that uh, I enjoyed most. Yeah, the, the capital of the world, um, as a friend of mine calls it, um, great, great town. Um, and I'm actually hoping to be there in about uh, two weeks' time, so I'm looking forward to it. You've wet my appetite. Um, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, you can find us on the web at uh, businessinsider.com.au. We are on iTunes, where you can subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. Uh, the show is produced by Josh Nicholas. Thanks very much, Josh. Uh, I've been here with uh, Greg McKenna. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone. And our guest this week, we've been delighted to have uh, Kerry Craig from uh, J.P. Morgan. Uh, Kerry, fantastic uh, chat. I think really, really enlightening. Um, and I think, um, I hope that um, our listeners get an awful lot out of it. So thanks for coming on the show. Cheers, Paul. Thanks very much. Um, okay, talk soon. Bye. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.